So, I'm going to go probably really into something a lot of people is going to be hard to hear. Um, it's, it's hard to talk about. So, yeah, here we go. About, well, let's see, this October 18th would have been my second year anniversary. And I won't get to experience that or even acknowledge it for the most part because of this current situation I'm in. Um, I met who I call the love of my life, Craig Lawhorn, around 2013. Um, the end of 2013 and 2014, yeah, and we had met on a, my yearbook, I believe is what it was, and we were just talking, you know, I never really thought anything would come of it, he had lived in another town away, and... We hit it off really good. He was really funny. He said some of the randomest, craziest things. But he kept things interesting, like, in our conversations. And then he had mentioned that he was possibly thinking about moving back into town. And so on and so forth. And he had a son and things weren't working out. Or hadn't worked out between his mother and that. And um, there was a whole bunch of stuff going on in both our lives. I had been single for over a year. I had my own place. Had my son. And all that. Um, and we finally met. And he stayed the night. A few nights. And there was... It was funny because he was very <laughs> timid and polite. Which was really weird for me to be around uh, with a guy anyway. Like he didn't try to put any moves on me or anything like most guys would you know stay in the night you know I let him sleep in one room I slept in another because I had a three bedroom at the time and then one night I told him you know it was fine if he wanted to sleep in the same bed with me and he never tried to do anything I do remember the first time he uh, <laughs> wanted to kiss me he had told me but he wanted to kiss me, but he was afraid that I didn't want him to, and he'd get rejected, so he didn't want to try. But he said it out loud, <laughs> instead of, like, thinking it. And I started laughing, and I told him it was fine, he could kiss me. And I think, at that moment, I knew he was different. Because he didn't approach me, as most guys did. He didn't automatically assume to take this step, as most guys did. And... Granted, I am a very guarded person. I am very hard to love. I'm very hard to get used to. I don't open up to people. I don't show affection like other people do. I'm not going to always give you the assurance that you need in a relationship to know how I feel about you. My 
view of that is if I'm with you, obviously, I still care about you. If I'm still, you know, giving you kisses goodbye and saying I love you randomly, then obviously I still, you know, I'm not going to give you that assurance. It's just not how I am. And, uh, we fought, we fought like hell sometimes. And it was always over a miscommunication or he had such a fear of being fucked over that he was waiting for it to happen. And that was a lot of it. He had a lot of insecurities and so did I. And we, I fought tooth and nail with that man. There was days where, oh my God, I just wanted him to get the fuck out of my house. And I didn't want to do it anymore. I was tired of the screaming and whatever. But at the end of all of our arguments, or when, you know, he would be upset, I would want to sit down and talk to him. Not argue, but figure out what the fucking problem was. And for some reason, I never did that with anybody else. Like, I would lash out and be enraged and we'd have those huge fiery arguments and that would be it I would never attempt to tackle the problem like let's sit down and talk about this you know instead of great after all the everything's out there we've shouted and everything else let's sit down and talk about this and he told me that was one of the reasons why he fell in love with me because no one had ever done that with him, you know, no one ever wanted to sit down and talk about the problem, even after the argument, you know, they just, whatever, it's done, it's over with, we're not going to deal with it, and there was moments to where I knew that he was who I was supposed to be with, when I was with him, I felt home. I felt safe. I felt secure. I never felt like I had to worry about him stepping out on me. I never figured I had to worry about him disrespecting me. I felt so secure and at home with him that I've never had that before. In almost every relationship, I had always had to be a detective. I always had to go out and figure out what the hell because my intuition was telling me that they were not being right with me. They were not being true to me. And I didn't have that with him. And even though we fought 24, I mean, not 24-7, because, like, when we had, we had a blast together. You know, the my kids liked him. He was fun. He was, you know, whatever. Our main problems was is he never went, he didn't make the effort to go out and work. It was the main issue. I made all the money which is fine. I usually do in most of my relationships anyways. But they always held a job, and he never did. Like, he did a little bit, but not really a lot. And that was our main issue. But as we were together, and summer was coming of 2014, um, he started getting sick a lot. He started throwing up, not being able to hold his food and everything. He kept going to the ER, and he kept going to the ER. And they kept treating him for gastric reflex and an ulcer. Well, he kept dropping weight. And then finally we got into an actual doctor. We got him on some insurance and got him into an actual doctor. And they wanted to scope him and all that. And they went ahead and scoped him and all that stuff and found that he had a massive ulcer in the lower part of his stomach. And they wanted to, you know, it covered almost the entire part of the lower half of his stomach. So they wanted to remove it. 
and get rid of it, you know, and stitch everything back up. It was about two weeks, I think, after his birthday when they went in to do the surgery. The news that came out of the surgeon's mouth was a life-changing moment. When she came out of the surgery, I was waiting, and she asked to talk to me privately, which automatically in my mind isn't good. But I've gone through a lot of things, so I automatically put on my switch, which is emotions off and logic on. She sat me down and said, (coughs) sorry, and said, we... Opened him up and tried to, you know, we were going to remove the, the ulcer. But instead what they found was that he had a massive tumor underneath his ulcer. And it had spread to his abdominal wall and cavity. That day we found out he had stage 4 gastric cancer. Which is incurable. You even in early stages, which is very rare. And it's very quick. We were told not to say anything to him. The surgeons, the doctors wanted to sit down and talk to him. They didn't want us to be the one to tell him. Being someone who has found somebody who made me feel so secure, so happy just everything and finding out pretty much that they were going to die is probably the hardest things I've ever had to hear. I, uh, I held everything together very well. I was always told, you know, your breakdowns and emotions, you know, that's, that's a private matter. You don't need to wail out in front of the public and stuff like that and so I've always kept my composure very well around people um once I found out I walked to the room and I told his mother who took it you know very hard as a mother would and then I had to leave to go get my son But before I did that, I, uh, the first person I I called was my son's father. It wasn't the first person. I tried to call other people, but no one would pick up, and I had to tell somebody. And me and my son's father are still very good friends. We communicate very well. It was a friendship that started off as a friendship. And then, you know, stuff happened. We tried to make it work. It didn't work. We remained friends. It's that simple. Um, And he told me, you know, I need to make the best of my time with him. Make it count. And that he would help me, you know, if I needed him to get Draven, our son, um, a few more extra days sometimes or whatever. If there's certain things, you know, he would be fine with that and... 
everything else. And then I drove home and called my mother because I can't call my mom and try to talk to her without completely breaking down when it comes to stuff like that. So I would wait until I wasn't driving. Um, but I drove crying pretty much the whole way home, which is about an hour drive. And I gathered my thoughts. My mom drove back up with me. And when Craig woke up, he wanted to know what happened, but no one could tell him anything. So, we had to all act like, you know, well, you know, we don't know yet. They haven't come back with the results, so on and so forth. When they finally told him that he had cancer and what stage it was, and pretty much that he had three to six months to live, He became very defensive. He became very angry. He called all of us fake. We weren't there for him. Because we didn't tell him. We knew. But we couldn't tell him. Um, from that point on, his perspective of things changed greatly. In the hospital, I fought with him a lot. He didn't want to do things. He wouldn't abide by their rules. Um, he got kicked out of one hospital, he signed himself out of another hospital underneath, it, it was a rough road, he didn't want to be there, he didn't want to abide by their rules, he wanted them to just cater to what he needed, he was dying, he wanted everyone to kneel down and do what he wanted, and that's not how it worked, um, in the hospital, he would do better. He had a J tube and a G a J tube and a G tube. It was a feeding tubes that he had to be hooked up to because he couldn't actually eat anything for his body to process it because his stomach was dying. Um and they wouldn't start him on chemo or radiation until he would gain a significant amount of weight because where he was at it would kill him faster to start radiation at the weight he was at, or chemo. But they wouldn't keep him in the hospital to keep him gaining weight. Every time they sent him home, he would drop weight. One, because he would refuse to stay on his feeding tube at home. It didn't matter if I hooked him up to it. He wouldn't want to stay on it. He'd want off of it. He was tired. He didn't want to be on it anymore. Um... The first few times they sent him home, they didn't send him home with anything that he needed. Yeah, they, he had the feeding tube, but they didn't send him home with anything to hook him up to the feeding tube. They just wanted, I don't even know what they wanted. So he would drink his normal drinks or I would pour some of the uh, Ensure drinks into his tube. But they didn't send the machine to constantly keep pumping it. So he wasn't getting enough nutrition through it. So finally, one of the last times he, they discharged him, I told him that we were, not we were not leaving the hospital unless they made sure he had everything that he needed at home because they want him to do all this stuff, but they never sent him home with anything that he needed. So when we got all that done, then it was still a struggle to keep him on it 24 hours. He would not want to be on it 24 hours. He would get tired. Of laying there 
and doing that. But yet he didn't want to go out and do anything. The further it got, regardless of anything he did, he started closing himself off. He stayed in our bedroom 24 hours a day. Unless it was to come out and get something to drink or use the bathroom. He alienated himself from everybody. He was done. And we would argue because I felt like he wasn't fighting. Because I felt like he had accepted the fact that he was dying. And I wasn't going to let that happen. I did everything. I made. I called specialists. I drove him up to Cleveland. I took him to Detroit. Uh, his mom took him to Cleveland. I took him to Detroit. But I called up there to get the appointment for Cleveland to their cancer clinic. I took him up to Detroit who had an amazing cancer clinic. Anything to get some hope back into him. Anything to tell us that he could have more time. That there is a way that we could possibly get through this a little longer. And it was always the same thing. He was too underweight and too fragile to start anything. It would just eat him up. And he just slowly slipped away. And being there watching someone you love die. Physically watching them wither away to nothing. Is the hardest thing ever. You feel hopeless. You feel helpless. Nothing you can do is going to save them. Nothing you do is going to change their perspective of how they feel. One of the last arguments we had was Thanksgiving. And he didn't want to go to my mom's and be with the family because he didn't feel good. I was tired of hearing it. I told him he's never going to feel good. He's sick. But there are plenty of people out there who are diagnosed with cancer at late stages and they make the best of every moment. They go out and do things regardless of their pain. They take extra meds if they need to to manage it. But they do not let life just slip them by and that he was going to die in that fucking room if he didn't do something about it. And he got up and he went my mom's house and it was one of the best last days he had you know everyone was really nice to him he laughed he joked you know he had a really good time that argument still bothers me I wanted him to fight to experience life still and not just hide away in our room the next few weeks he'd gotten really sick really weak December 10th 
He was acting rather weird. He was in what they call the waking dream state, where their body is awake, but subconsciously they're sleeping. So it's like dream talking all day. He jumped out of bed. I remember because he had thought he had wet himself or um, his tube had popped open. Either way, he had spilled something on himself and he wanted to take a shower. So I helped him into the shower. Washed him off. Washed him for him. Um, and within ten minutes, he looked at me. He said he didn't feel very good. And he collapsed on me. Mind you, I'm five two and a half. He was about six foot six one. Okay, I couldn't hold him. I slowly lowered him down to the ground and he wasn't responding. It was probably the scariest, hardest moments of my life. I finally got him laid down to where I could grab my phone and I called 911 a call that I never thought in my life would I ever have to do I finally got him to come back telling, screaming at him telling him not to leave me I called his dad his dad had rushed over about the same time the ambulance had got there I had got him back responsive they had took him to the ER and they sure all his vitals and everything he was a little dehydrated but everything seemed normal the noises he made when he collapsed were probably the most horrifying things at that moment thinking about it I knew he didn't have much longer. The moans and groans of him slowly fading out were horrifying. And we brought him home. And, you know, put him in bed. And he had this thing with talking to people that had passed away. He would talk to his grandma and to his uncle that were no longer alive. And I knew it was only a matter of time. Six o'clock in the morning, the next day, his uh, IV bag was beeping, as it always does. So I got up and changed it, checked on him. He was still, you know, he was finally sleeping. Because he hadn't been sleeping very much. He was breathing okay. A little heavy, but still okay. I changed his IV bags. I reset everything. I laid back down beside him. I kissed him and I told him I loved him. Two hours later, my son walked into the room. He asked me if I was going to get him ready for school. So I hadn't gotten up, apparently. And I told him, yeah, that's fine. And I rolled over. 
and my husband was no longer breathing. I had told Draven, my son, to go wait in the living room for me. And I, uh, I checked everything. I tried to wake him up. But within two hours, he was, from the time I woke up to check on him the first time, he was gone. My son instantly asked me what happened to Craig. He knew something was wrong. And I had to tell my son, who had grown so fondly of him, that he passed away. He was only five. He doesn't really know how to process certain things. He went and sat in the corner with his head down. And I had to make the call to the hospice nurse who was on her way. And I called my mother. And then I started calling his other family. I called his sister. Because I couldn't get a hold of anybody else. So I called his sister, Samantha. And everybody came over to say their goodbyes. And I feel like everyone who had came over that day probably made it, I made it seem like I didn't care or it didn't hurt me as much because I kept my composure very well. But I had to. As all his family around here came to say their final goodbye to him at my house, I wasn't going to be rude or inconsolable. You know, this this was Craig. It was for them to say goodbye to him, to deal with their things, not to worry about me. I had my moments, trust me. I still have them. And it's something that will stay with me forever. And it's something that I do not wish on my worst enemy to ever go through. Is to watch the one person that you loved truly in your life slowly die. I had a good support system. My little sister being probably the biggest one and it's just I don't get to talk about it a lot I relive it a lot in my head things I wish I could have done differently things that I should have done more of or if there was a way I should have found it and I'm sure some of his family still blame me. And some of them may not. Some of them may just realize that, you know, she did the best she could. And what have you. He had pushed a lot of his family away when he got sick. He didn't want them around. He said they stressed him out more. They were always yelling at him, telling him to do this, telling him to do that. And he just didn't want to do it. 
and as his wife, I accepted that. He, you know, I wasn't going to try to bomb the issues. The day before he died, the day of, that he came home from the hospital, I got him to say yes to letting his mother and his sister and all that come and see him. You know, and I let them know, you know, there was planned for them to come and see him. And that's the day that he passed away. I'm still very angry. I'm still very hurt. I'm still very lost. My life will never be the same. I will never be the same. And a lot of people know that. They've noticed the change in me. I don't have that fire in me. I don't have that fight in me anymore. I simply just gave up. I gave up trying to always be that person for everybody. I got I got tired very quick after losing my husband. I don't find the purpose in a lot of things. Why should I fight to change somebody who's never going to change? Why should I stand by whatever? And then there's the opposite to where I just let people walk all over me anymore. Like I just, I don't care. I genuinely just don't care sometimes. And I'm sure someday it'll get better and I'll find myself again. And maybe I won't. Maybe I'll just emerge a completely different person. Maybe that'll be good and maybe it'll be bad. Either way, it's an experience that I'll never forget. That taught me a lot. That took a lot away from me at the same time. And most of my family, you know, were not very close like that to where they're going to understand. You know, no one's going to understand what I went through. No one's going to understand how I feel. Am I bitter? Yeah, I'm bitter. I can tell you that. I'm very bitter when it comes to certain things. Do I wish for people around me not to be happy? Not at all. But I also wish for them to do it. Do it makes them happy because it's what truly makes them happy. Not because they're settling. You know, and sometimes I think people think that I just married him because he was sick and I wanted the attention. I've heard that rumor a few times from his family. I've heard that it was an attention wedding. It wasn't real love. I don't know about any of you, but for someone to accept the fact that they've already been with you for a little bit and you get the news that the person you were with is going to die from cancer in a matter of months 
and you choose to stay by them and fight with them and do everything in your power to make sure that they were happy and taken care of and got to the doctors and even beyond that. If that's not love, then apparently I don't know what is. And I'm sure there'll be mixed feelings about this and so on and so forth, but I don't really care. I was the one who was there for him every step of the way. I'm the one that took care of him. I'm the one that bathed him, fed him, made sure that he had his all his medications that changed his freaking dressings from his feeding tubes, that cleaned out his feeding tubes, that flushed his IV pick lines. I was the one that was doing that. Nobody else. Nobody has a right to judge me or assume that I didn't take care of him. Nobody else was there but me. I quit my jobs, both of them, so I could take care of him. To stay home to make sure someone was constantly there. And then when I started working again, I had my sister, who is a home health care need, help me and help him. And there was a few his friends that would come over and stay when I worked at night. So that way he had someone there in case something were to happen. Don't ever think for one second that I did it for attention. If anybody knows me, I'm the most selfless person out there. I do everything for everybody that I care about. Always. Always there. Everything in my power to make those people happy or help them in some way. And I never ask for anything. Yeah. That's the story of a widow. Probably just ruined most of your days. Hey, that's what the venting's about.